This is uh, Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth uh, Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue our discussion on the book of Exodus starting in chapter 24 today. Now today is fascinating because chapter 24 and 25, well 24 leads the discussion and introduces a new character by the name of Joshua. Um, and it's a, it's a, he's a, he's a Moses's helper. This is how they refer to him as, but we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But the, the part that I'm going to spend a lot of time on is the tabernacle, but just to kind of give you kind of a precursor of, of this discussion. So the, the Hebrew faith is, is very, is, is not landlocked until the, the temple is built. That, that's really important. That everybody knows. So when we're talking about the book of Exodus and they're talking about the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies is, is everywhere the tabernacle goes, right? So it's not one place. That doesn't happen until Solomon and David. And, and, and then they say, God, this is it. This is the only place that God's going to set foot on earth. So you want to think primitive. This is, this is literally out in the wilderness. This is not set in one place. They're still traveling. They're still living in tents, you know. Uh, going with the seasons, if you will, and 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 they get to the tabernacle. Now, why am I big deal about the tabernacle? Well, when we get to the tabernacle part, the part that's fascinating to me is is a lot of the language that Jesus uses uh, refers to things that we would have known specifically in the tabernacle, but didn't know that they might have been in the temple. So there's like this really interesting conversation about ancient Judaism versus Christianity. Um, that there was this kind of push towards uh, some of the stuff in the temple had become not necessarily gaudy. So uh, I don't want to say it like this and, and, and say it the wrong way, but I've always looked at it. Um, and I can hear my professor saying, no, Josh, this is wrong. But the only way it makes sense to me is, um, is that the, there's a, a need, a desire after the book of Exodus to come back to the book of Exodus. Even if you look at the Christian church, Disciples of Christ in the United States, one of the, the big things that we claimed ourselves to be was restorationists. This idea of what would the church look like in the first century? We want to look like that, not what we created, not the institution that got created from that. We wanted to restore ourselves to this first century. So when you hear me say phrases that Barton W. Stone or Alexander Campbell would say, like, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. They're, they're literally trying to say, we want to go back to the basic essentials as to what it means to be Christians. And, and this is a big deal. So when you look at it in, in the history of Judaism, they get to a point where they just want to reclaim the tabernacle. They want to come back to this idea. And it's very primitive in its sense but it's very detailed, like how this is going to work and how this is going to be put together. So um, I'm making a big deal out of this because for me, it's fascinating because this is the first time in the Bible that they start to create a holy space for the creator um, and, and to imagine what that would look like. You know, like what, what would it look like when our early founders were trying to figure out how does it, sanctuary is supposed to look how's what is a sanctuary supposed to look like what is its function how do how do we bring the presence of god into the place um you know this is where you start to see the change in the 20th century with the introduction of sound equipment 
Um, you know, you start looking at how, how do we make sure that everyone can hear the voice from the very back of the pews, because it doesn't matter how big you build the sanctuary, everyone's going to sit in the back seat. <laughs> it just doesn't matter so um and then you're going to have the same problem when you started introducing technology like when you when you started putting in the the screens that's the same exact problem we're going to design all of these fancy things but at the end of the day people are still all going to sit in the back seat and then then you're talking about when we this is why you see why i'm making a big deal out of this do you think the tabernacle in the sense of well what happened when we go on a pandemic and we can't go out and worship you know physically together well we how do you create sacred space through people's phones or their computers? What about those that don't have computers or phones? How do you, this is the idea of the tabernacle. They're out in the wilderness. They have left Egypt and they're trying to figure out, okay, now we know who we are. We know kind of what we do. Where do we do it? It's, I think it's brilliant. And, and, I, and I think that's why I always go back to the tabernacle way more than I do the temple, the creation of the temple now temple because it it becomes institutionalized by the time the temple is created the tabernacle is organic this feels good let's go for it and there's this guttural oh yeah let's go and i mean i'm getting goosebumps you know just thinking about how cool that is so um yeah i'm gonna stop there any questions comments before we begin reading okay so chapter 24 then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel and bow low from afar. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of the Lord and all the rules and all the people answered with one voice. This is this is a worship thing, Right. All the things that the Lord has commanded, we will do. This is a responsive reading. Moses then wrote down all the commands of the Lord. And early in the morning, he set up an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he designated some young men among the Israelites, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as offerings. <laughs> Am I glasses? Uh, don't need glasses. Of well-being to the Lord. <laughs> Moses took one part of the blood and put it in basins. Okay, now this is fascinating. He took one part of the blood, put it in the basins, and the other part of the blood, and uh, he dashed against the altar, like you would do on the, uh, okay. like paint, or like a, above the mantle, splashed. right? Like that's splashed. what you did. You smeared the lamb's blood above the door, so this is, he threw it on the <clears> altar. <throat> um, and they said, all that's here's the worship all that the lord has spoken we will faithfully do yes moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said this is the blood of the covenant this is the part i wanted to look at the, the lord now makes for you concerning all these commands just pause for one moment i'm going to look at this because i got to get the scripture correctly Covenant is the part that I want us to focus in on. I gotta pull up my super in total in here. Exodus. I'm in chapter 24, verse 8. Worship. 
Yes, okay, so this is Kaberit, which is the, the covenant. This is a legal binding document. They use Berit um, for any time that they make a covenant between you and I or with God. It's a, it's, this is it. You notice that they're doing it with blood. Okay, so just a little bit of ickiness. <laughs> In the Hebrew culture, blood is something that is both foul and divine at the same time. Uh, you're not supposed to touch blood because it's the life-giving essence of life that God has provided. Um, and at the same time, you can't avoid blood. It's something that's always around you, no matter what happens. If you're making a, a blood oath, you cannot break it for fear of death. If you have the literal blood of this thing on you and you have made this barit with God and you break it, you're on your own. <laughs> like that's literally what they're saying so this is this is a very interesting thing they, they don't do this uh i mean i have a hard time finding this kind of blood oath anywhere else in the rest of the hebrew bible this you'll hear you'll hear them make i make a bereave with you i'll make a covenant with you but their word was became as just as important as this act so look at what happens okay so we've what sacrificed Clean blood then? Yes, why? Could you made a covenant? Yes, and we do all these things uh, we will do, and the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will faithfully do. So they're they've cleansed it. So now it's an act of worship. This is exactly what all the rest of the tribes that were not Jewish were doing, with one exception. The way the other tribes would do this is not necessarily designed to make a, a covenant with their false gods or the pagans, right? Like the Jews would look at. So now you've thrown it on the altar. You've thrown it in a basin to keep it holy, right? Because that's a holy thing, holy vessel. Thrown it on the altar. Theoretically, it's going to be burnt sacrifices. And then now we're making this covenant on you, on the people. It's kind of fascinating. Weird act of worship. It's a weird liturgical study. No wonder everybody sits at the back. That's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly what That's for. a thought, yeah. Mine says the book of the covenant. Yeah, so there's the book of the covenant. Is that what yours says? Is the translation? Interesting. Anybody else have anything different in verse 8? Covenant. Well, the, the midrash for this, this conversation that you, if you look at the uh, Jewish translation society that they say is the book of the covenant. My section is in seven where it says that. In verse seven, right. That would make, maybe, then he took the record of the covenant, should say the book of the covenant. Is that what yours all said in verse seven? Record. Yeah. Book. book okay that's a good translation so the the book of the covenant then becomes uh, this idea that it's how they keep track of all their stuff we will faithfully do is literally the most tra literal translation we would really should say 
uh, the translations say we will do and listen. But what the way we translate it is, is no, it's all my phone. Everybody's calling me. Yeah, I've literally had four phone calls this morning. So here. Um, we will do and listen. And the Midrash inferred what, from this was that the people trusted God so thoroughly that they committed themselves to obey his commands before they even heard them. Notice that this hasn't even happened. He's, he, Moses has talked to the people, talked to God. They've had this really great dialogue. Um, we still don't have any of the commands that God has given to us. They went up the mountain. He's brought this group of people too. Now, my translation society, the Jewish Public Translation Society says this, and I did a lot of research on this at one point, because there's this interesting conversation about building the 12 pillars. Well, in our mind, we think Corinthian pillars. We think architectural. Pillars for them could be like a cairn, like you would see for the Celtic group where they stack rocks on top of each other. That could be a pillar. If they literally represented the people, a lot of scholars will say that it's most likely that instead of throwing the blood on the human beings, that he might've thrown the blood on the pillars because they represented the human beings. Why am I making this semantic argument? Well, remember, blood is still sacred to them. So <clears throat> it gives us a little bit of comfort to them saying, okay, they didn't just throw blood on each other and make this blood <laughs> oath like blood brothers. Because um, it's, it's really not, it doesn't make sense in their anthropology. However, they all still believe that this is what happened. This is how they did it. And there's no questions about this. They, they, there's no issues whatsoever that this took place. That this covenant happens before they've even been given their commands. Brilliant, 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 Ryan. <laughs> I want to keep going unless you have a question. So then, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders ascended, and they saw God, um, uh, the God of Israel under his feet, there was a likeness of pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Yet he did not raise his hand against the leaders of the Israelites. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. And the Lord said to Moses, uh, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you this, the stone tablets with the teachings and commandments which I have inscribed to instruct them. So Moses and his attendant Yeshua, or Joshua, arose, and Moses ascended the mountain of God to the elders. He had said, wait here for us until we return to you. You have Aaron and her with you. Let anyone who has a legal matter approach them. Her, uh, in an ancient context, my, my dad loves this, this guy. Um, her is supposed to be, uh, they're, they're supposed to be providing Moses's duties in his absence. So if anything happens to him, they become the voice of God. My dad always was fascinated, not necessarily with Aaron, but her, like who is this person? How did they come into being? And there's uh, rabbinic tr tradition on uh, stuff like that. So her could be more than one person? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. There's so a there, lot. There may be four people with Aaron. Aaron and four people. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, my daughter's getting ready to walk in. <laughs> so uh, notice that at the mountain, there's this pavement of sapphire. 
uh, we've talked about this in other ancient texts. We also would refer to this as maybe streets of gold. That's in Revelation. Right. It gets changed in. So this is this is a interesting conversation that they they have this. What what color is sapphire? Blue. Blue, right? So mine has lapis lazuli, which is also blue. That's awesome. With gold. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. So so here you go. This is this the pavement looks like the sky. Um I just I love the imagery. Um sorry. And they're on pavement so he won't fall. So he won't fall. So so this is this is your image of Indiana Jones walking across the, the big chasm, the, the 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 walkway that looks like the stones. This is this is that idea. There's this, there's a obviously a geographic phenomenon that you can only find in this specific place on the mountain that they had to articulate that those stones themselves were blue. You see how you see how that goes? It's primitive. It's not. It's not an allegory. This is. This is. This is or a metaphor. Even at this point, it's literally in their mind. They're telling you here's the geographic place that Moses walked on earth with, with walked up to God. Uh, so when Moses had ascended the oh wait yeah yeah when Moses had ascended the mountain the cloud covered the mountain the presence of the Lord abode on Mount Sinai and the cloud hid it for six days. This is second. Hey, can you take that cart that's in the office? Two? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Brother Shin is already there. So. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought. It's okay. But now that you're here, take the wagon. Oh. <laughs> yes. I love you. Bye bye. <laughs> uh, when he ascended on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The presence of the Lord abode on Mount Sinai, and the cloud hid it for six days. On the seventh day, duh. He called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Now the presence of the Lord appeared in the sight of the Israelites as a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Moses went inside the cloud and ascended the mountain, and Moses remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Did you remember that part of the story? But at, this, at this point in time, approximately, how old would Moses be? <laughs> Uh, I have no idea. Like 200? I'm just going to say super old. Okay. But he's not, he's not old, old, right? Because he's not to the point where somebody has to carry him. But Joshua becomes his attendant. Yeah. So obviously he needs some assistance. But Joshua doesn't end up, you know, taking up these physical things. I mean, he walks up a mountain, so it can't be. Right. And Joshua is not with him at that point. Right, Joshua's not there. So there's there's got to be for for them the age is not the issue, but the fact that he was there at his age would have mattered. Um, if it follows, won't won't they tell us here in a little while? Those guys, they usually tell us how old they are. Right, and they do tell you how old he is is when he dies. So you can back that they were only out there forty years. <laughs> that's right theoretically they're only out there 40 years but notice now there's 40 days and 40 nights have we had the speech about the 40 days 40 nights conversation okay there's a, a literary technique that the hebrews create 
um, that you're going to find throughout the rest of the entire Hebrew Bible. Um, you, you found it in the in the conversation of Noah. Yeah. Right. The 40, 40, was it 40 days? 40, 40 days and 40 nights. So this 40 days, 40 nights, you see in the Torah, it establishes a literary technique, which means a really long time. More than a month, less than a year. Right. It's it's a, a very long time. So the, at least at one cycle of the moon, like that's kind of an idea that I want you to kind of keep in your mind. And so uh, for him to be up there, it's not a literal 40 days, 40 nights. That's what is usually preached. And I don't have a problem with it being the literal 40 days and 40 nights, but, but why does it have to be? The only reason that it becomes important to us is, is the time uh, when Jesus brings up the conversation um, when he goes on a, he goes in the wilderness, right? Be, after, he was after he was baptized, when he was in the wilderness for 40, 40, 40 days, 40 nights. Um, so that's a, that's a, it, it's an homage to the Hebrew writings um, that Jesus was out in the wilderness meditating for 40 days, 40 nights. There's also this idea I'm getting excited. I need to slow down because I want to finish this today. But there's also an idea of worship here that says being alone and praying and listening only to the voice of God is the best way to do it. Because then you're not being distracted by humans. You're not being told to go off path by other human distractions. So there's, a, there's not just a literary technique. It's a liturgical technique that we should all take time to go into the wilderness and pray. Um, we've articulated that from the European culture that we take time away. Like when the phrase vacations come in the, to mind, you know, you go away, you go do something. Uh, that's why staycations don't work, <laughs> right? Because you don't really rest. You stay at home and what do you do? Simple things. <laughs> you, that's right. You find things to do and you work. So this, this idea is not new to us but it's, it's something that they're creating here as a way of worship. That's the difference. So um, that's the quick speech of the 40 days, 40 nights. It's a liturgical thing as well as a literary thing. So does the 70 elders mean anything? Yeah, so 70 becomes a, another, another number that uh, the Hebrews use a lot. 70 is a, is a massive group of people. It's also a battalion. Right, like all of the people that they that have done it, it's about seventy people in the so All the elders that they need. That's right. In case, in well, case I mean, of war, right? For, yeah. And then the other six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called Moses from within the cloud. Mm -hmm. So you got now you got your seven again. You know, so you've got the six days and the seventh days rest. But seventh really then because not just rest, it's also the. The complete and it becomes the day of the Lord. I was gonna say it's the day he went to speak with God. That's right. So so for us, and even then, Sabbath doesn't mean just that we just sit there and not do anything. <coughs> we devote it to God. You're supposed to pray on Sunday all day long. You're not supposed to work, you're not supposed to go mow your lawn, you're not supposed to if you were Jewish. We're not Jewish. So, but you still should take the Sabbath day holy, make the Sabbath day holy eating together, that's a very big, important thing. I know that sounds weird, and, and everybody looks at me and goes, well, yeah, Josh, you just like to eat. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Liturgically, 
it's a very important thing that communities of faith eat together. They celebrate that day of the Lord together. That's why fellowship dinners are so important. We should have one every Sunday. <clears throat> well, that's why the early church did. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, the first century church was a dinner church. They did it in people's homes every single time. Every letter that Paul writes is somebody meeting in someone's home. So I have completely rabbit trail, but I have it, right? Because the 40 days and 40 nights is a liturgical practice that we've lost. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, two weeks is too long. Four weeks is, well, actually two weeks is just right. Four weeks is too long <laughs> for anybody to hear the voice of God. Which is why if you do a sabbatical, you should not say, I'm going to spend only two weeks doing these things. I'm going to spend four weeks listening to the voice of God. Why? Well, because that's close to 40 days. Most people set up for five so that you can complete the 40 days. That's why you do it. But that doesn't mean that's why they, anybody actually practices that. But you're supposed to spend that time listening to the voice of God. Anyway, not that I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, so let's keep going. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart so moves so moves him, and these are the gifts that you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, goats, hair, uh, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins. Uh, we really don't know what dugong <laughs> means, but what do some of your other translations come up with? Another type of durable leather. <laughs> Another type of, that's an NIV translation if yeah. I ever heard it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the word dugong, we don't know what it means in that ancient sure Hebrew. So, uh, and then acacia wood makes total sense. Oil for lighting spices for the anointing. Oil for the aromatic incense. Lapis lazuli uh, and other stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, we just switched gears. Did you all catch that? Mm -hmm. Now we're taking these gifts and we're creating them into a... Tabernacle. <laughs> Tabernacle. Or, and, and in this all of place, its, and all of its accoutrements. And all of its accoutrements. So, and then he says, Isn't ephod a, a coat or? Yes, a, like an ephod is for like, the, 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 the like a vest. And then the breast piece is going to have uh, all of these little things inside of stones and other That's right. stuff. That's right. So it's, it's going to get really fancy quick. It's a weird. Yeah. It's super heavy. <laughs> we have no proof that anybody ever wore it. And the, 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 the I'll get into it. Yeah. <clears throat> so let them make a sanctuary. Is that how yours is translated? That I may dwell among them exactly as I show you. <laughs> the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, you shall make it. <clears throat> they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Oh, overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it inside and out and make upon it a gold molding roundabout. Cast four gold rings uh, for it to be attached to its four feet. Two rings on one side walls um, of its side walls and two on the other. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Then insert the poles into the rings on the side walls of the ark for carrying the ark. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be removed from it. And deposit the ark and the tablets of the pact, which I will give you. Well, when did we know to name this an ark? Huh. 
Good question. So if we if we don't know if God is saying it, our what? next assumption would say the Levitical priests are inserting why we have an Ark of the Covenant and, yeah. and why Aaron has this coat with fancy stones in it and why does the high priest get to wear that nobody else does <laughs> mine has a chest as a footnote a chest as a footnote yeah the translation is weird the the ark cover itself even is is a little bit different we haven't got there yet but okay but yeah well, so we are next <laughs> yeah it's definitely coming uh the literal translation from the Hebrew word Aran is chest. Oh, okay. That's that's why the NIV has chest, and the Jewish Translation Society just continued to say ark because the ark of the barit, Aran barit, so the, the covenant, the ark of the covenant. So, uh, uh, yeah, did that help? Okay, I, just don't, I don't. I, I'm, I I have a tendency to go really fast through this because it gets kind of inundated. It's tedious. Quick. It's very tedious. So now you've got the ark. Then he says, "You shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubit long and a cubit and a half wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the cover." Now here's the interesting thing. Uh, I'll just wait. Slow down, Josh. <laughs> make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end and of one piece with the cover you shall make the cherubim at its two ends the cherubim shall have their wings spread out above shielding the cover uh, with their wings they shall confront each other the faces of the cherubim being toward the turn toward the cover place the cover on top of the ark and after depositing inside the ark of the uh, the uh, the the covenant that I will give you, or the pact, or the stone tablets, or whatever your translation puts it together. There I will meet with you, and I will impart to you from above the cover, from between the two cherubim, and on, or on top of the ark of the pact, or promise, all that I will command you concerning the Israelite people. So, so now you've got this box, you've got a cover created where the angel's wings are facing the middle, the angel's faces are facing towards the center, all of the presence of God is inside this box. And then what he says is, because it's going to be so heavy. That's, I mean, that's a lot of gold. So then you're going to, he, he says, then I will pick it up and put it on top of the box. In other words, you don't get to move it. I'll take care of that for you. This is, this is, uh, this is Steven Spielberg's moment in the uh, Indiana Jones and the, the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, when you see that at the very end, the, the stone, the, the cover flies up into the sky and falls on top of it and seals it shut. <laughs> Why did that happen? Because Steven Spielberg was Jewish and he read this because he knew that if human beings touch the top of that, they die, which is what happens in the movie. But God puts the lid back on top. He, he, held, he held no holds back. Uh, on that one at all no, no holds barred on that he he full-on showed up ah, there's the presence of god in the midst in the midst of an indian jokes movie i don't care it was awesome brilliant brilliant plan <laughs> but you really kind of have to know be literate in the bible or in the jewish bible to know to see the meaning in all that that oh exactly yeah yeah that was that was the part that was awesome uh i had no idea i just thought it was cool when i was a kid that when i spent seven semesters studying Hebrew and got done on it. 
Oh, wow, that's so awesome. <laughs> he does this on all of his stuff. If you all watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, we were just talking about it in my Sunday school class on Sunday. Uh, if you watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that is the book of Daniel. The he he does he he I would argue that it's his version of the midrash the the the, the spinning discs with the lights and the bright light where the angels are coming up and down and people from the past are going coming back to you and the, the dead will rise and and uh, yeah that's that's midrash for Steven Spielberg understanding the book of Daniel um, and then you've got the Indiana Jones thing you can see it where he's talking about how when the even when the nazis knock the top off they all die but then god ends up saving them all by picking up the cover and putting it back on top where did he get that right here the guy's in the suit too right i mean yeah whatever you want to call it and he's, he's wearing, wearing the breastplate yeah no no he's the, absolutely wearing the, the the whole armor of aaron like he's got the breastplate on he's got the ephod he's got the the, the 12 tribes on it and he's a nazi like it was totally <laughs> I mean, it's brilliant how Stephen did it, but at the same time, the guy in the movie was wearing this outfit. Yeah, I forgot about that totally, Robert. So really, Stephen Spielberg is making Christian movies. Uh, he's <laughs> Jewish. Jewish. He's making Jewish <laughs> movies that make us go, ooh, that's super cool, because you always understand that uh, that Indiana Jones is most likely Episcopalian at the end of the day. <laughs> so that's another conversation for the but, but there's a there's this interesting interesting dialogue what we just got done reading but look at the mysticism that takes place right there's these human things that have become mystical well it's almost kind of like god's telling us he'll cover us yeah <laughs> yeah it's the lid on he's, he's got our back he's gonna cover us if we if we go to him he may just leave me <laughs> and then and no one else can take it away from us you see how that works also? That is, it means if the enemies even come to take the Ark of the Covenant, it's not going to do them any good. <laughs> now, the Ark of the Covenant ends up changing. Um, the mythos of the Ark of the Covenant changes over time. Like, what is its purpose? How does it work? At this point, it's supposed to hold the Ten Commandments. Somewhere, we're going to get to the part where it talks about the staff of Aaron, and then it's going to talk about a few other things. But in the Torah, the more you get into the Torah, it starts bringing stuff into it. But the mythos of the ark changes, and they even take it into battle. Specifically, Joshua takes it uh, takes it into battle, and um, and 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 the way that it's portrayed is is that the only ones that are allowed to even come close to the ark are the high priests, and they and they can touch it because somebody's got to move it, right? But if you're supposed to use the poles, you got to use the poles, which we're getting ready to talk about. Uh, if if you if you have the poles and they've got to be the right poles and it can't be just any pole. Uh, if you put the poles on, the, the priest can take it into battle and everyone that witnesses it dies. Um, except for evidently the Hebrew culture, <laughs> which they don't talk about. So so it's a it's a fascinating thing in a way it gets started. But the, did you all catch the part about the cherubs? <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to figure out where they, it's just assumed that you know what a cherub looks like. Right. I mean, or that was where I was at. Same thing with the ark. I'm, I'm struggling to think that they don't already have arcs, a chest. Right. Um, probably not of this size or anything, but they. And not covered with gold. Yeah. No, I'm just talking about a. Yeah, just a chest. A chest. Probably. 
yeah, I don't think this is a new concept to them. Of course, this is backwards. By the time you're reading this, you, should, right. you already know all this. Right. And this is this is a solidifi solidification of why we have an archive to cover it and why it has to be covered in gold. And the whole thing is done orally, and it's an enormous amount of material. And why they think Moses could have remembered that enough to tell the people about it, and then they build it by this. They don't have it written down. There are no specs. Right. <laughs> and so what's happening is, is these Levitical priests are going back and saying, oh, yeah, by the way, God said. Yeah. Here's the specs. Yeah. What? So let, let's, since you're all Bible scholars now, <laughs> what, is, what is the assumption then? If the Levitical priests have come back and said, here's the specs of the Ark of the Covenant, what does that imply? I, I just literally want you to think humorously. Oh, I was going to say because God said it. Okay, so God definitely said it. So we got to do that. Well, they're they're probably looking at it as they're writing this, or at sure. least they've seen it. Oh yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, they've seen they, it. they may have went over there from afar, measured it. I mean, this is super heavy, right? Like you, you got to know that. Well, what happens if somebody comes in and attacks them and takes it away from you? Well, the Philistines did at one point, and they they were all dead. Uh huh. So they took it back, right? Or took it somewhere. So what happens if one of the priests drops it and it breaks? It's the idea. I don't well, always... of course, there are four people carrying it. Uh huh. So someone's going to drop it. Yeah, <laughs> but hopefully the other three can still hold it. Well, That's right. If it's pure gold, they're just going to thin it. Right. It's not going to break. That's the idea. So, think, think of your little okay. red wagon, though. If a wheel comes off, the other three's probably not going to hold it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but I'm not. I mean, I think that they, the Levitical priests come back and they write down the specific the specific measurements of this because if it does get stolen and melted down to the ground, they now know what to do to build it back. To make another one. To make another one. Okay. Is acacia wood heavy? Because that's actually what the ark is made of. And then it's... Not really. I'm going to think of it like teak. Teak itself isn't heavy, but it's waterproof, right? right? And it's... Uh, acacia itself, I was thinking I might have had some. I do have acacia wood in here. Uh, no, I don't. That's all. I have acacia back at the house. So acacia wood is, uh, is it's really dense, but it's not, it's not super heavy. Uh, when I think of teak, it's beet, it's a, it's a hard wood. It's, it's, uh, it'll last forever. Um, but it's, it's not, it's not. It's not like pine, um, where when it gets wet, it, it soaks up in all the, the, the fluid. Acacia does not soak up moisture. Once it's cut from the tree, it's, it's done. But it, it will last forever. You barely have to treat it at all. Why they made ships out of teak. Yeah, that's exactly why they made ships out of teak. And acacia wood becomes one of the strongest things that they build homes with. So, um, it's what they would put on the roofs. You know, if you think about how you built uh, the homes in Israel, ancient homes in Israel, they, they would be uh, sandstone bricks coming up to the top. And then across the top, they would put acacia wood limbs. And then they put the thatch type of stuff down. So when, when the, 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 the friends of the paralytic tear off the roof mm -hmm. and drop the guy, that's, that's from acacia wood. Or olive. So all way. they have to do is get the thatch and then push them. 
Yeah, like literally through the cracks. <laughs> it's not it's not too crazy. They don't have to tear it up. <clears throat> no, no, but they're super strong. <laughs> they would have done it just like we do with our two by these are two by twenties. Yeah. These are actually three by twenties. But anyway, these this it would be like this wide. And then you put little branches across the top. So yeah, it makes total sense. Then he says, you know, like for example, in verse 23, you shall make a table out of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make it a gold molding around it. Make a rim of a hand's breadth around it and make a gold molding for its rim of, uh, around about. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at the four, that's four legs. And the ring shall be next to the rim as holders for poles to carry the table. Make the poles out of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. So now these are, this is super, super heavy. By these, the table shall be carried, make its bowls, ladles, jars, and jugs with which to offer libations, make them of pure gold. And on the table, you shall set the bread of display to be before me always. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its calyxes and petals shall be of one piece. So now, you, now you're talking ornamentation. Six branches shall issue from its sides, three branches from one side of the lampstand and three branches from the other of the lampstand. On one branch, there shall be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with calyx and petals. And on the next branch, there shall be three cups shaped like, uh, oops, I skipped a line. For all six branches, issuing from the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be uh, four cups. Did I miss that? No, it's the same thing. It's just the same thing. Uh, shaped like almond blossoms, each each with calyx and petals. A calyx is a, a calyx of one piece with it under a pair of branches. What does yours have for calyx? A bud. A bud, okay. A bud uh, and, a, and one piece with it under the last pair of branches. So for all six branches issuing from the lampstand, their buds <clears throat> and their stems shall be of one piece with it, the whole of its single hammered piece of pure gold. Make it seven lamps, the lamps shall be mounted as to give the light on its front side and its tongs and fire pans of pure gold. It shall be made with all these furnishings out of a talent of a pure gold. Note well and follow the patterns for them and the blah, 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 I'll show them out. <laughs> When it, when it started that, I was thinking it sounds kind of like it's going to be a menorah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it, it ended up not, <laughs> yeah, no. Menorah comes much later. Uh, we have to have a Maccabean revolt. So that hadn't happened yet. So for, for this, this is just a, a lamp stand, a table. Uh, it, you know, people have tried to recreate the Ark of the Covenant. And the first thing that they'll tell you is it's kind of fascinating how they would have done the engineering of this um, because of how heavy it was that the rings that would be holding the, the thing would, would probably break off, right? Like, so you're not going to move it very often. Um, you're not going to Not like it. they're doing in the wilderness. Right, like they're carrying it in the wilderness everywhere they go. Yeah, probably putting it on a cart, you know? I mean... <laughs> There's there's some reality things going on here, but it's pretty idea. It's cool. And then there's this neat table that's put together, and it's kind of awesome. So why gold? It's the most valuable uh, resource available. Why would God care? 
I don't think God did. That's just a big lie. Kind of <laughs> say, kind of steal me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> would that be more of a physical <coughs> insert? Well, they already have it. It's already made out of gold, right? So they're already talking about here. It is. We're looking at it, like Robert said. We're looking at, at it at the it's time right. they write it. At the time they write it. So I think I think if, in their mind, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with this being gold because God's the most precious resource in all of creation. <laughs> If it hadn't been for God, we would we'll use our best stuff. I was mm -hmm. just thinking of Rome's not going to tear the temple down to get a piece of wood out of it. No. Other than destroying <clears throat> what the Jews believed in. But I mean, there's no... Anybody might be after the gold. Yeah, they were. Yeah. When you, when you get down to it, when they destroy the temple the first time, the wealth that they get from that fuels an empire for decades, right? Babylon. You know, Babylon becomes this just this powerhouse. Why? Well, they they're loaded now. They're <laughs> way way rich. When they destroy the second temple, that's what they use to build the Colosseum. You know, I mean, like oh. so. This is this is super expensive stuff. Like and and like you said, it's just begging for people to come and steal it, which is why. In my, in my cynical self, I think that's why they're being so detailed with the instructions on how to build it, because I think it got stolen multiple times. I think it got <laughs> taken away multiple times. And I think you know it's it, it would be like it, it'd be like for us somebody coming in and vandalizing and stealing our communion table. I, I guess my mind and it's it's. <laughs> It's more human than than anything else. Oh, but, yeah. but I'm going to go back to the priests. They're probably not wanting you to bring them uh, your favorite rock or right. or your stick that <laughs> right. that you right. play games with. You know, we, yeah, that's, we'd rather that's have idea. something that's worth yeah something. So, and here we'll show you what we're doing with it. Yeah, I think um, that's a I think that's a really good assessment. I I, I don't think. By the time that they're putting this together, I don't, I don't think they're thinking. <laughs> I think they're saying, please don't bring us a stone that you found on the way here. <laughs> you know, I, I think you're. Right. I, I understand bringing your best. That part of it, I just. I think the amount of gold they're using has to be more than these people would have owned. They supposedly got it from the Egyptians, but there wasn't probably that much gold in the world at that right, time. Right, So this, so Sally brings up a good point. So there's the, the midrash that comes from that. Like where did oh. all this get gold comes from? How did, we, did they get all this gold? Well, in the, the midrash where the rabbi would say, well, the Egyptians, right? Because all the Egyptians did is they gave them their gold and silver on their way out the door. Here, and, take and it. And their jewelry, which they're and, and their jewelry. That's right. So what do we do with it? Well, we melt it. We make stuff out of it. <laughs> So it's a great rabbinical uh, Sunday school lesson. But the ark ends up being in the tabernacle. Is that right? <laughs> or in the temple? Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Theoretically, it was in the first temple. So probably, or it's a possibility that they could, they would have built the ark out of just the acacia wood. So we just have a wooden box, and which wouldn't be. You were talking about the rings. Maybe the rings were made out of, I don't know, some kind of steel or wood even. Yeah. But anyway, and once it got to the temple or the tabernacle, then they could have put the gold on there. Sure, and they didn't and have to as, move. As they found. 
and then it didn't have to move. Because this, I mean, we read this, and my mind immediately always goes to, okay, well, that may have taken about a week. Well, no, it took it's years. years to do. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know when during the 40 years this got done. Exactly. I don't have any idea when that happened. I think it goes back to another rabbinical idea. God is obviously giving this to them at the beginning of their 40-year journey. But so they've the, got to do it. But they've got to do it while they're walking in the wilderness. And I always wondered how they could do all this fine stuff, and then it it says, and that's obviously a, a rabbinical thing, um, or a, a priest edition. God gives them the ability to do all this fine all of a stuff. Yeah, all right. of a sudden. Yeah. And I love I love the uh, the intricate ornamentation that he gives to them. Why why bud? Why blossom? You know, these are these are these are brilliant added statements of how this is supposed to work. <clears throat> I always I just you know every time that we do this and we're kind of getting close to time. The the part that's fascinating to me as we get closer to the tabernacle is it's not that unheard of, right? Like it's 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 literally us writing down a list of how we're supposed to make chicken salad. <laughs> it's that's it's a recipe, right? Like this is we want we want people to know that we love them by doing this. We want people to know that God loves them by doing these things. This is, these are acts of worship. We do this because it's important. And why did, why is it so, well, it's so important that we wrote it down. We've been talking about it for centuries and now we've figured out, you know what? Our stories keep changing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> we, we probably ought to make sure that this makes sense because the ephod, the, the, the one that Aaron wears, that, that has been under extreme scrutiny for i mean millennia of how that worked and, and how that was supposed to be worn and did the high priest at the time of the destruction of the temple did where did it go right like in uh there's i'm gonna say it wrong i know that there's archaeological evidence that we have some breastplates that look just like this you know like that have the lapis lazuli and the the emeralds and the sapphires and representing each of yeah, the 12, 12, 12 stones. We, we have breastplates that, that have come from that time frame. We know that they existed, but there isn't, so it's, it's not crazy, right? Like it's, it's a, it's not a fairy tale either, but there's, there's a, there's a thing to it. that's talking about these things are important to us. Here's why. Um, and I, and I think when we get to the tabernacle, I forgot that it starts in 26 and not 25. I always do that wrong. But when you get to the tabernacle structure, I want you to think about sacred space. That's how I want to end. Yeah. When you think about sacred space, it can have four walls and a roof and a floor. But what do the four walls and the roof and the floor mean? If you're going to make a sacred space, it needs to have sacredness to it. Like when you look at our sanctuary, there's an architectural sacredness into the way that it's put together, the way that stained glass is created all the way down to the baptistry and even the placement of the pulpit and the lectern. These things were thought out. They were not just, here's your carbon copy version of the sanctuary, put it together. The, the idea of the stained glass tells the story of God creating the earth all the way to the gift of Jesus Christ as our savior, down to the aspect of in the Christian church, you make that profession of faith through your baptism in the baptistry and then then what happens is is then we receive 
the word of God, which comes from the right hand. So if you're going backwards to the audience, the pulpit then becomes the, the word of God comes from the right hand of God. The left-hand side would be where the scripture would have been read or the, the people would have led the hymns or the psalters, right? And then the, even then, then, it makes even more sense theologically that we have the communion table on the floor because we only get that from the word of God that we are to celebrate that moment together and why all are welcome. So if you have it elevated, not everyone's welcome, right? Just only those that are on the top of the table visually, right? That's not, but that, that's, that's change. You see that even that theology has changed for us. When I was growing up, you know, the community table was the highest thing in the room, right? Always has been. So it can be seen. So it could be seen so that everyone could participate. And it was in the center of the service. In the center of the service. And so for me, when we moved it down to the floor, I had to create an idea. Why does this matter? Why, why is it? It's okay to put it on the floor, but why? I know that's weird, but it's so us elderly elders can get up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then either build a ramp or yeah, that's right. <laughs> build a ramp table. or move take, the table. Or give we'll me longer to get up there. Well, and, and, and in my mind, I, I thought, well, if I'm going to describe this theologically, I want to explain why that we moved it on the floor. Just not just for them, but also <laughs> for them, right? Like that's a big deal. Because I didn't the way we had the communion table, I had to inhale just to get behind it and then. <laughs> And then even then, I couldn't really stand there as uh, Humpty Dumpty. But you know, it's a, it was, it's, a, it's an interesting ideology that when you start talking about sacred space, it's not just four walls, a roof, and a floor. Our sanctuary, we we take that very serious, just like the Hebrew culture did when they're talking about tabernacle and all of these things. They all matter. So even the stuff that we put in the sanctuary, we, we really think about it. The worship committee gets annoyed with me when I say, oh, well, what does that mean, right? Like, why are we putting that in there? Um, but that's that's my interpretation of how we describe Torah for us as Christians. And with that, I'll just kind of stop. Any questions, comments? In the Zion Lutheran Church, you go forward and you kneel up yes. at the communion table and there I mean you do go up and you you kneel in the Methodist yeah. church you kneel but you're not going up really the the height yeah. is only the height of the kneeler mm -hmm. no ours is it went up there okay. I'd just like to say that the Christian church that I went to in Bella Vista when I first started it reminded me a lot of this of you know the church here we had pews we had a choir we had song books well we had an organ we had a piano <laughs> we had a communion table now there is no communion table the pews are gone there are chairs there's no hymnals there's no choir loft all the all that is gone but i the people that go there now i'm sure feel the same spirit as when we went there. Mm -hmm. So does it really make that much difference? I mean, well, I guess, I don't know. That's the argument of the 20th century. This is that do we, is, is it, is the four walls and the, and the roof and the floor, does it bring the presence of God? Well, yeah, we, we can find holy places anywhere we go, right? The idea of the change of liturgy and how we worship changed everything. You know, the 
And the, and the scary part is, is before I before we finish this discussion, one of the things that's kind of terrifying right now in the world of religious academia is there's there's a, the, the the 20th century modified so much of Christianity in 50 years that the things that were sacred were taken away, the things that be, became sacred, right? Like the new things that became sacred were, were thrust upon everyone. And the argument that's being made right now is, is that the fear is that creation of the 20th century church is not going to survive to the 22nd. And so what the conversation then becomes is how did the church survive prior to the 20th century and how are we going to survive after? So the 20th century changed everything about the way we look at every all of these things and some of it for the good and some of it for the bad, you know, so the, the churches that have the sacredness, they will continue to have people, they just might not have as many. The churches that have all of the stuff and it doesn't really look like a church per se, but a big meeting room, they are still functioning, but there's no, there's no issues of how that works, but we just don't know what that looks like because we don't have any proof of how that works. All we have proof of is academically, mind you, is that all of these buildings that were built in the 14th and 15th century still have people coming to worship. You know, that's the weird thing. No one's ever seen what happened in the 20th century because it's just so powerful. I mean, just not to, totally rabbit trail, but one of the things that was interesting in the 20th century was the creation of the mega church. And the, the mega church idea of being able to meet in an auditorium that could seat 10,000 people. The church was never designed to do that. It was always designed to be with small groups of people to take care of small groups of people like the communities. But it was fascinating to watch, right? And then what happens is you have these gigantic movements in the name of Jesus that there's an anonymity to it. Like you can come in and walk out and you don't have to participate. You don't have to do it because somebody's going to do that. But what ends up happening is, is that eventually what, we're, what we are seeing is, is that, especially during the pandemic, that those churches of the 10,000 still stay the 10,000, but nobody's filling those buildings anymore. So even the places of worship that, that we modified, no one's physically coming to them. They're, they didn't do good of a job online. So now what we're seeing is the churches are moving from being in person to being fully away from humans altogether, which is really terrifying. Unless they go back to the smaller um, church. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, you're seeing people come back to the ruralness of worship. They're coming back to that place, but they still feel connected to that more than they feel to the rural church. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> so I, I was, I was, so an an short answer to your question, Karen, I don't know. <laughs> well, I was a huge proponent for this, by the way, that you're talking about. Like when you go to a church and say, let's take out the pews and put in chairs and we need to create opportunities for all types of music and worship and and, you know, some of this stuff is just bulky and in the way. Like, I remember saying this when I first started in the ministry. And then, and then as I've gotten older, I, I've realized, well, those had purpose. 
but nobody talked about it anymore. We never discussed why these things were important to us. We didn't have a book of Exodus that sit there and says, hey, look, this Ark of the Covenant matters to us, and this is why. And we've lost that. And so what's happened is, is that when we try to regain who it is that we are, we, we, don't, we don't know even where to begin. I have a relationship with Jesus. Cool. I go to this place of worship. Awesome. What makes it special? Well, the people. Awesome. I remember, I remember being a huge proponent of that when I was working in churches before, um, before I started working on my doctorate. And then all of a sudden, it's not that I've said that that's bad. I just I've started to come back to, I think it's got to be a hybrid. Like it's got to be a little bit of both and. Even in that space without any of the churchiness to it, there has to be something sacred about it. You know, and we have to figure out how to articulate that. But I don't know. Write it down. <laughs> we got to write it down. Yeah. There's, there's, it, there's a lot of things that we do because we always did it that way. Yeah. And when we lose grasp of why we did it that way, then it no longer is a reason to do it. And I mean, you know, we've been talking about the buildings, but you look at these beautiful cathedrals that they built way back when, and you walk in there. And, you know, somebody in the pulpit area can say something and everybody can hear what was said or where the choir is. I mean, you know, and the buildings were built like that. So they could do that. They could hold large groups of people. And uh, we got microphones now. So you don't, I mean, that part of it is gone. Yeah, why, we put carpet on the floors. Yeah. I mean, why you did this or why you did that. <clears throat> Uh, with the band, Perry Band, I went with on one field trip and we went to the Field Museum in uh, Chicago. And there's just an area in there where they play that the acoustics were just fantastic. And, and you see this, you hear somebody singing in a well or over in a corner of a building or, or something in Tulsa like that where you can stand in a parking lot and hear everything. All I'm saying there is those buildings were built like that for a reason, and we don't understand what that reason is anymore, so we can or do change it. <clears throat> and then there's other, you know, the, the table. There's a reason for that that we may or may not understand, and it's lost. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at the end <clears throat> of this recording, I would say that the, the part that leads us to the tabernacle discussion <clears throat> is as we listen to how the ancient Jews create that place of sacredness, it makes us, it should challenge us to figure out what it is that makes it sacred for us. Um, and it, it's going to look different for each of us in this room, even like, and that's okay. That's awesome. It's beautiful. Thank God you all have brains and you don't have to hear everything I say and thank God for that. But there's something awesome about this discussion that can continue on forever but I'm going to stop the recording and uh, 